Evening all, and welcome to Kino Kingdom 53. Um, this is an, an action-packed episode. Uh, we've had a few responses to our last Arkansas, which was Natasha Henstrich to John Candy, which gave some interesting responses, actually. Uh, some some really good ones, so I'm looking forward to those. We've got one video, one video response to that as well. Well, sorry, an audio response as opposed to a text mm-hmm. response with a swear word in it and everything. So this is very wow. much, very much a show for for adults. Um, <laughs> this is one for after the watershed. I've got um, I've got a few uh, things here that films that I've watched that you've also watched very recently. Okay. Um, so I, I've got like about what is it one two three four five six seven eight ten like eleven films, but really a lot of them are like like two minute trashings or just or just sort of rebuttals and responses to things you've watched that that you think are amazing. I think you're crap, mate. <laughs> you just want to set the record straight really. <laughs> before we go out there. Um, so yeah, well, I'll, I'll launch off with the with the Arkansas. So um, I'll I'll leave the audio file for last. Um, okay. So we've got it was Natasha Henstrich to John Candy, and I just want to do my version because for some reason I, I had a few messages of people talking about how addictive it is to do the Arkansas, <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know why, but I, I never I never kind of think to do it myself because I like to find out people's paths as as we talk through it. Um, mm. But I said, no, I'm going to do this one. And it is, it is weirdly, it does dig into your brain when you're trying to do this. Yeah. And you get locked on certain actors and certain movies. Uh, and you think, oh, yes. no, I, I have to, I have to force this. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I'm fixating it. on a certain path. <clears throat> like, you think to yourself, well, if I can only get to, even if he's got nothing to do with it, if only I can get to, like, Kevin Costner or something like that. And you yeah. fixate on that. And then you get to Kevin Costner and you think, why was I getting to Kevin Costner again? What is yeah. the connection between him? Oh, no, it was, it was <laughs> Kevin Pollock I actually wanted to get to. <laughs> oh, no, it's Sidney Pollock. Oh, damn it. Um, yeah, and also I, I've come up with an idea for, um, you mentioned before, a sort of tentpole Arkansas where you, ha- you have to get from one person to another via someone else. And I, I like that idea. So I've come up with a sort of like a turbo, like a, an ultra mega super turbo Arkansas that probably will go over a few episodes and I'll mention after we do this the, this one I'll throw that in then we'll do the podcast then we'll do the normal Arkansas at the end just to mix things up yeah so so Natasha Henstrich to John Candy uh, my tr- my my way was um, Natasha Henstrich is in Maximum Risk with Jean-Claude Van Damme who is in Expendables 2 with uh, uh, sorry Expendables Two with, hang on now. <laughs> oh God, I've lost it. Expendables two with everyone. Everyone in the world, I've I've lost it. I've actually lost it. Was oh yeah, who's in Expendables two with um, uh, bloody what's his name? I don't know. Uh, Sylvester Stallone, who was in Expendables three with Mel Gibson, who stars in Lethal Weapon with Danny Glover, who's in Gone Fishing with Joe Pesci, who's in Home Alone with John Candy. That was my way. So you can see why I don't bother. Because <laughs> every Arkansas I think, right, I have to get to Gone Fishing somehow. I love how that you went to one installment in a series of films to the next installment in a series of films in order to get to where you wanted to go. <laughs> Um, okay, so this is from Adrian, and he had 
um, John Candy was in Stripes with Bill Murray. Bill Murray was in Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom, uh, which also starred Bruce Willis, who was in The Whole Nine Yards with Natasha Henstrich. It's a three-stepper there. Uh, we had Laszlo Bucket said, Good morning, darling. I have Mark and Zara and Sophie. John Candy was in Splash with Daryl Hannah, who was in Kill Bill with Michael Madsen, who was in Species with Natasha Henstrich. And okay. and Max said, Natasha Henstrich is in The Whole Nine Yards with Michael Clark Duncan, who was in Green Mile with Hanks, who was in Splash with John Candy. Okay. So that's another three-stepper. And good three this, steps coming in. this is from Utah Smith. Natasha Henstrich. Oh, I've got to I got to preface this by saying he says Michael Mann, but he means Michael Madsen. <laughs> Natasha Henstridge to Michael Mann in Species to Daryl Hannah in Kill Bill to fucking splash with John Candy. Boom. It's an excitable message, but one <laughs> <laughs> one I think it's a draw. Actually, I think it's like a three or four way tie so far, mm. unless. Unless Rupert, you can come hurling out of the gate with a with a winner. It's going to be a five way tie. Um, <laughs> Natasha Henstridge is in Species with Michael Madsen, who's in Wyatt Earp with Kevin Costner, who's in JFK with John Candy. Oh, nice. I, I tell you what, I, what got stuck in my mind with this one was I I couldn't remember if it was John Candy in Wagons East or um. Canadian Bacon, but I think he's in Canadian Bacon, mm. and and Wagons East stars uh, Chris Farley and Matthew Perry. So of yep. course I was trying to get to that as well for no reason. And that <laughs> kind of mention, mentioning Matthew Perry um, <clears throat> gets me into my idea for for this this ultra mega turbo super Arkansas. Mm. Um, and so this is this is probably going to go over a few episodes. I'm just intrigued as to how people are going to approach this. Um, and if you want to um, email us your uh, answer or your, your your journey, your Arkansas journey, it's the men who talk at outlook.com. And I was thinking about getting getting through all six main members of the Friends cast um, as an Arkansas in any order, but you're not allowed to like bounce in and out of the film off the same actor, if you know what I mean. Okay. So, as an example of that, I would say, like, if I could get to um, Romy and Michelle's high school reunion with Lisa Cadreau and Mira Savino, I couldn't then, if I got in that way through Mira Savino, I couldn't get out that way. If you know what I mean, it's yes. got to be a through line, if that makes sense. Yes. So linear yeah. through line. Okay. Uh, great album by Tangerine <laughs> Dream. Um, yeah. So that's uh, that's the, that's my amazing idea. And and um, with that, unless you've got anything else to add, Ruby, with that, it's off to the off to the movies. It's off to the races. Um, well, you've got a thousand films, so I suppose you better crack on and uh, <clears throat> introduce your first Godfrey Ho film. <laughs> you know what? I, uh, this is another thing. I I went um, I went to charity shops. Um, on the weekend and I went there explicitly with the thought of like oh I'm going to pick up some real golden shash here and the, the quality the level of quality was too good I was I, I was in the charity shops thinking right here we go looking for ones that have f- six movies on one disc you know three on each side all 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 in 4k and massively uh, and it compre- was it's so compressed it sounds like <laughs> the soundtrack sounds like someone dragging a load of bins along cobblestone much like Godfrey Ho films, I know. Right, okay. um, 
which actually induce migraines. No, so I and they, I was looking. There was like Tenet. There was like all these different films. And I thought there's nothing crap here. There's not even there's no Don the Dragon Wilson movies. There's nothing Billy Blanks inflected. So the I issue was, is, I, is there's nothing really. All that stuff is on streaming services. You know, pretty regularly it comes in and out. Whatever you know. There's really no reason to be buying that stuff. The stuff you want to, the stuff you want to pick up in charity shops is stuff that they, you may pick up on Amazon Prime on a like a VHS transfer, but you'd be lucky even then. Yeah, you want to look at a film that says it stars James Hong and Gary Daniels, <laughs> and you think, yeah, I'm buying that. I'm yeah. buying that, and and it's called something like Bullet to the Moon. Yeah, and then you watch it and you realise, oh, I've seen this already. It's just under an alternative title. <laughs> um, so the first film I want to talk about is The Batman, which you watched in, and talked about a couple of episodes ago. And um, I, I've been looking forward to this for a while. It's not often I really look forward to movies, but I was keen for this one and I had the perfect evening. I had a nice glass of something brown in front of me and it started like, it's a three hour film, obviously. So it started and, uh, and, and powered on, but I just, I know you've covered it already, but I just wanted to say that I think uh, this is a very important film that people should watch because um, I, I watched it. Um, I watched it on the night and Faye fell asleep towards the end. Nothing to do with the film, just because it was three hours long and it was coming up to one in the morning. And my eyes were spinning with glee. Um, and in the, the next day, she said, also kind of, how, how did it sort of pan out? And I was explaining it. And I said, I could watch it again. I feel like if we were at home and I could, and it was there, I could happily just watch it again straight away, which is yeah. something I, I, I don't think I've done in a very long time. Not since Predator um, 2, really. <laughs> Yeah, but not Predators. I think Predators was the film that I turned on and didn't even get past the cast introduction when I realised that Topher Grace was in it. I thought, I'm not sitting through that again. I turned it off. <laughs> Just because the scene at the end where he tries to befriend them, I hate it so much. It's ruined yeah. the entire film, even though I fancy Adrian Brody. Um, yeah, but yeah, with, with The Batman, I was... Uh, I, I, when, I, when I watched it, I was lying in bed like thinking about it. Just lying there thinking, God, I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, there, there was... It, there were so many moments. There were so many sort of things in it that really stood out. The penguin makeup with Colin Farrell is astonishing. It's incredible. Really, really good. And, he, and his character is astonishing as well. But I think for me, is obviously being a big Nirvana fan, when it, when something in the way kicked in, I thought, mm-hmm, good. Mm-hmm. I thought, good. But what got me was not only was it, it I thought it was like a well-chosen song from one of my favorite bands in what is like a, a, a film that it's too early to say it's one of my favorites but I can I can very much imagine revisiting it quite often over the next few years but what I liked was not only did the something in the way was was it used in the film but it kind of informed the rest of the soundtrack as a sort of morose funeral mm-hmm. march theme tune the dum 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 yeah, yeah. it was like that simple sort of theme and I was my trousers were not on my person i i looked down so my legs are cold and i looked down and they were actually being burnt by a lot of druids in a deeply sexual ritual next to me as i watched the film so that was good um yeah yeah and the funeral march thing it's a good observation yeah definitely that it does sound like that doesn't it's a really grim simple motif isn't it no, I was yeah, all over. The fact they, they kept on returning to. It. I thought I'm absolutely fine with this. Um, the 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 I, I don't want to go into spoiler territory because I specifically went into this film. I think I watched one trailer early on, and I and I went into it blind. And I really 
I, I think I got the most out of it that I could. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it feels it's a re- it feels like a really rich film. It feels yes. like the film the way it's the way it's filmed. I, I'm I'm always aware sometimes when I watch films like this that I I think I bet if I was a real scholar of of the media of cinema, I would be like completely hip steep in the technical aspects of this, mm. the choices of shots and coloring. But as as a total layman going into it, I still think, I mean, my my the whole the whole thing is obviously like you know is it the best batman film and i think the michael keaton one i love because it's because it's so comic booky and yes. so tongue-in-cheek and i think i like this for the same reason I, I like how it's not certain things and shots and sequences aren't really explained it's mm. almost like th- this is the story this is what's happening now like the intricacy of it doesn't matter whereas yeah. i feel like the nolan films were bogged down in intricacy and explanations the, yes. This this is much more like turning a page, and it's like right. This is the story. This is this is this page of it, and yes, it was I, I think a... even aside from the storytelling in the Nolan films, the way it was shot, and that was um, it's very formalist style, wasn't it? It was, it was there were very clean angles and lines, and I think the difference with Matt Reeves' Batman is that it's. Like there are certain sequences in it which are almost like hypnotic in was mesmeric in the way that they the way that they're framed and edited like that whole car chase sequence is so odd it's like it's, it's so close up it's yeah so, it's so close and, up and, like, and so kind of reflections and things yeah. yeah and you just see it's almost like shards of light and stuff it's really really weird and but not in an annoying way it's still exciting so i don't know it looks it kind of looks like an almost like weird expressionistic kind of comic book at times. And I, and I really like that. It had a very over the top kind of approach. I, I mean, I, I think it's clearly, uh, clearly delineated from something. Well, like the Nolan films, just as they were very different from the Burton films. So I think they can all exist in their own right. And I, you know, anyone can have their favorites really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Even the Schumacher ones, if you're so inclined. I yeah, and also there there was I was I found myself kind of um, getting emotionally involved towards the end, not yes. in like a not not in a um, not in a sort of sentimental lump in my throat way, but but just getting just actually being completely on board with what was happening and kind of rooting for him. There, yes. there was there, I. I what I thought this film did really well is when, you know, he's doing his thing and he's getting a bit of a kick in because it's like two or three years into his his kind of um, his time as Batman. But there's there are a few moments without giving anything away where things like the the he becomes aware of the scale of what's happening, expanding. Uh, you know, yes. like th- th- this is not just me beating up a few things and he's thrown into situations where like he has to like it's basically just like almost like a a disaster that he is part of and there is like a few moments where he you can see him thinking shit (laughs) and and then he he has to has to act and i love those moments where he's like right i'm just gonna have to do what i can and just dive in and you and you really feel it's like an underdog i I was i think it's absolutely fantastic so it's a film i'm gonna go back and even now talking about it i just wish we could just like knock the podcast down here delete all the episodes offline and i can just watch batman again (laughs) but yeah so quite frankly i enjoyed it yes i think rich is the uh is the word that's why you kind of want to watch it again because you feel like if you watched it again you'd notice more stuff you know 
just mm. in the frame stuff people say and yeah it's always good to watch a great film again knowing what's going to happen because you can pick up on that stuff in the writing and, and that and the biggest high five in the universe to paul dano who is secretly one of the greatest men to ever walk the earth <laughs> Just every time I see him, I just think it's such a weird screen presence. It's something about him and Barry Keoghan and um, uh, what's the the other one who was in in Mud? I was forget. I was mixed up with Barry Keoghan. Ty Sheridan. Yes, there's something about the screen presences that really gets me going. Yes. On the. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So what? Watch the Batman, please. Yes. It is a necessity. What's next? Do you is there oh, something yeah. want to continue with? I've only got five films, I think. So I I can do a yeah I can I can I can move on to another one. I watched Bullet to Beijing, which is a TV movie from I think 1995, starring um, Michael Caine as his uh, what's his name? It's Harry something, isn't it? it, it I've got his name. He's, he's so underwhelming in the film. Um, the, he he it's the continuation of the Ipcris Harry Palmer. Oh yeah. The Ipcris, okay. the Ipcris file, Bullet to Beijing, and it was filmed back to back with another film which isn't on Amazon Prime like that one was. Um, and I, it, it was really interesting because I thought, like, do you know what? I I was just aware that I haven't really watched any Michael Caine films. Uh, and I thought I've seen Oscar. I've seen the remake to get carded with Sylvester Stallone. And oh no, no, I didn't. Did I? I watched half of it and turned it off. So I was thinking, apart from his like sort of moments as as Alfred, I thought, have I actually seen a Michael Caine film? So obviously, I started with his best bullet to Beijing, and um, it, it's a it's it's really pretty because I watched this before I watched the new Bond film, which I'm going to talk about in a bit. No time to die. And this is on Amazon Prime, and it's included in the Prime membership. And it's a really uh, I. I I've heard his Harry Palmer character be described as like a working man's bond, like just just the admin side of it. Um, and there's a touch of the Agatha Christie and how everything sort of comes together and is explained at the end. But it's I found it like weirdly enthralling because mm. it's not he's not a he, he is obviously in this film. He's in his like 50s and he's he's fired at the start of it. They just sort of almost like Victor Meldrew at the start of One Foot in the Grave, they just say, ah, oh, just just piss off, really. And after all of the things <laughs> he's done, all the times he saved the world from the Chris Fowler stuff, and they're like, yeah, off your chart, love. And he's like, okay. And then he just like goes to a bar and then instantly just seemingly just defects to Russia. <laughs> Looks, He literally, like, someone slips him a napkin saying, I'll call this number. And it's someone with a Russian accent saying, get in the plane to Moscow. He's on there for the free drinks. So he doesn't care. And he's just really coasting through the whole film. And there's something about his understated approach to everything. It, it, it almost like he's, like, disinterested in the, in the very serious events around him. Um, there's a, I think it's Michael Gambon who plays, uh, mm. like, a... Uh, like a, a Russian kind of oligarch who gives him these really sort of vague uh, instructions to be on the train, the, the titular bullet to Beijing. And there's going to be a poison on there and a single drop of it can wipe out the universe. And he's like, yeah, no problem. <laughs> and, and, he, and, he, and he's on there. And there's a bit where he just, he goes to the toilet or something. And then just this Russian general pulls a gun on him and says, right, jump off the train then. And, and, and it's like booming along through this countryside. And he, and he just turns to him and says, Oh, can we wait for a slow bit? And then it cuts to him just being pushed off the train. It's a really funny visual gag. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, there's just something about how understated he is. Not unlike um, not in a sort of shambolic, 
jokey Mr. Bean sort of Johnny English way. He just mm-hmm. is like absolutely average. Like there's a bit where he gets into a shootout and he's like like sort of lucks his way through it and is actually quite practical. And at the end there's no Oh, that was cool. He just kind of gets on with it, if you know yeah. what I mean. And he's like secretly really good at his job. And I just found it really his character really amiable and like his practicality quite compulsive. So yeah, it's 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 like a low resolution film in four by three, uh, for a TV movie from 1995. But if you want to know what you know Bond would be like if if he was like bottom of the class effectively, but still good, and he went into admin. Uh, in, instead of Vespa Lynn, uh, then yeah, you'd um, you like it. I enjoyed it. You haven't mentioned yet that the music's by Rick Wakeman. I haven't. I did not. You know, I didn't know that, but I did notice there was a fair bit of twirling on the keyboards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those two facts aren't exclusive. I think. Um, also, I'm just looking at the poster for Bullet to Beijing, and um, the uh, tagline is. A stolen biological weapon begins a high-stakes game of kill or be killed. Now, apart from it being quite a long-winded tagline, you don't really need to say it's a high-stakes game of kill or be killed because that is pretty much the highest-stake game, isn't it? Kill or be killed because someone's going to die. If you said to me, what was that situation you were like in, Brett? And I said, well, it was kill or be killed. And then you went, oh, and I said, it was high-stakes You'd yeah. say, well, yeah. you've covered that, haven't you? Yeah. You just covered that, that in was the previous statement. What, in in yeah. fact, explicit in what you were saying. Yeah. yeah. Well, like, it's like saying, I got in a car and I pressed a button and I travelled at the speed of light and then leaving a gap and saying, which is quite fast. <laughs> um, that's interesting. Are you going to watch the rest of them then? Because there's a few. I mean, I, I suppose I, you I can do, hunt down Midnight in St. Petersburg. I wish it was filmed back to back, apparently. And I do wish that I had watched the Ipcris file first, yeah. but I, because I think the Ipcris file is on prime and then okay. Midnight in St. Petersburg isn't, but I do fully intend to watch them all because yeah, it was just something, it felt very Sunday afternoony in the best possible mm-hmm. way. Okay. Um, well, I will begin this journey with uh, the burbs. Which... Oh, nice is not free anywhere but it's available on prime to be paid um this was made in 1989 directed by joe dante uh starring tom hanks bruce dern carrie fisher Corey feldman and the like and of course this being the 80s and joe dante dick miller has a cameo naturally (laughs) um this came before big but uh, sorry after big but before Turner and Hooch, um, it didn't do as well as either of those films. It's kind of a black comedy with light horror elements, I suppose. Um, the setting is middle America, uh, just a, like a picket fence suburbia. Uh, you basically imagine the Adams family just moved in to this quaint little street. Um, and that's kind of the scenario facing Tom Hanks. He's taking a, staycation and he's bored basically so he starts fretting about these new foreign neighbors um and their creepy house something's happening in the basement of this house there are flashes of light and there are roaring sounds and then an elderly neighbor goes missing so tom hanks and his buddies they assume that these newcomers have murdered him 
So they hatch a plan to break into the neighbor's house and discover the truth. And um, there's some nice touches here, actually, when, when they go to break in the house. Like the house is number 669. And when they knock on the door, the nine flips down to create 666. That's quite cool. That sort of thing. <laughs> nice visual gags. Um, so essentially, it's really just a bunch of pathetic men stirring themselves up into a frenzy of paranoia about the neighbors. Um, it just takes that cliche of like the sordid secrets of suburbia and takes it up to a farcical level. Um, it's just like they're, they're kind of desperate house, what desperate husbands. Um, they're desperate for excitement and any kind of meaning in their life. Um, so you have this bunch of grown men acting like kids, basically, but they have the resources and skills to actually break into a creepy house. Um, the performances are kind of calibrated like a 70s or 80s sitcom, I guess, but with a better script. Um, that is for everyone except Hanks, because Tom Hanks actually plays it pretty dead can, deadpan, so it kind of anchors the movie quite nicely. And he gets a, a, a fantastic rant at the end, so that's good. Carrie Fisher, unfortunately, is just relegated to a humorless, disapproving wife, because it's all about the men. Um, it does have a kind of a serious undertone, I'd say. There's something in it about the nature of xenophobia, how prejudiced starts in the imagination first because they kind of like wind each other up these guys about how awful and evil these neighbors can possibly be and it kind of it's sort of it's sort of a cautionary tale about how that prejudice can't it can't be quelled without any kind of communication with the perceived enemy and it's also really fed by others in your kind of in group sharing that same prejudice so it's it's got some undertones, definitely. Now, Joe Dante is a good director and he knows classical horror and he he references it quite a bit in this. So, like, there's a direct reference to Psycho, for example, with a silhouette in a window. And then you've got Jerry Goldsmith, Goldsmith doing a score and it's very over the top, like a universal horror. So that's cool. It's like elevating this mundane suburban living to into gothic drama. So... It's quite nicely handled. I'd say the only issue is that it's a little bit compromised. I think it's it's like not as jokey, funny as Tom Hanks's other work at the time, like Big or particularly The Money Pit. And it's not really as dark or daring or weird as some other suburbia horrors from the time, like Parents or Pin or Serial Mum. Mum. But it does have a a satisfyingly over-the-top finale. So it does hold up pretty well. I think maybe if you were going to watch one slightly underseen Joe Dante movie, I'd watch Matinee first. It's the one that with John Goodman is set in and around a cinema as a nuclear attack is looming. I think that's probably the funnier and stranger movie. But The Burbs is also good. So it is recommended. This is uh, the film I've watched a lot. Uh, I've watched it for a very long time, but mm. this this was my Turner and Hooch and this were kind of my like I've, I think I've seen Big and I've never seen Splash. So early Tom mm. Hanks was very much Turner and Hooch in this for me. And um, I, I I just you there's there's a few key people in this film as well. You've got um, mm-hmm. Bruce Dern as isn't Bruce Dern like an all American kind of gun toting <laughs> neighbor? Yeah, he's constantly wearing like combat fatigues. 
Yeah. Corey Feldman being Corey Feldman. Uh, yes. Courtney Gaines, uh, mm. one of the younger, uh, from Children of the Corners in it. Mm. And, um, yeah, and I just remember the, the scene in this film that, um, that always always tickles me and still does is where they, they get invited. Where I think Carrie Fisher says, like, come on, we're just going to go around there. You're being silly. And then they come in and they give them something to eat, like a snack. Yeah. Uh, and Tom Hanks is sitting there. And they just give him this thing to eat. It's just this white thing. And he bites into it. It's really crunchy. And he's like crunching it like it's glass. And then he says, oh, what is it? And then so they say fish. And he's like, is it? <laughs> That's not the texture of fish. <laughs> that really tickles me the way he's like really grimacing as he's eating it and trying to be polite with like a rictus grin on his face. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, he's yeah. Such, I, I, yeah. He's, he's such a good comic performer. I, I know what you yeah. what you what you were saying about this with um it, the ending is massively over the top, but do you think as well? I mean, it is over twenty years, so we could spoil it, but mm. that it kind of takes away, the the ending takes away from that xenophobic uh, the kind of satire. subtlety and yeah, the sat- satirical part of it. But then I suppose I don't know. It's like it's made its point by then. Yeah, so, I think yeah. so, and I, I think it's. It goes so over the top and layers so many silly moments on top of each other. It's just like, okay, it's it's kind of shifted from satire into farce now, which is fine. I mean, it's yeah, it's still it's still funny. Um, yeah, but uh, I think yeah, I mean, I, Joe Dante had a really good run when you think about it around that time. With like obviously like the Howling Gremlins. Matinee, this. Um, Howling 2, Scuba's <laughs> Return, starring Jimmy Nail. Gosh. Of gosh. which I am literally waiting to pounce on a vinyl single of Ain't No Doubt, by the way. Imagine having a blossoming franchise, and by the second film, you bring in Jimmy Nail. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the highlight of um, the curse of Stirbert, whatever it's called, Howland Two, is the guy's sister gets killed supposedly in a car crash, and he's having a fag at her funeral, and a bloke in like a Mac comes up to him and says, "She was killed by a werewolf. Follow me." And he is on board. He is like, "All oh, right," and instantly it believes him, follows him, gets completely sucked up in the supernatural side of things. When really you probably would just. But turn around and walk away from the man, wouldn't you? Um, so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, well, while we're on the, after the Batman and the Bullet to Beijing, I'll carry on with more massive franchises. So, from the admin version of Bond to Bond himself, this is a film that was, and if you're listening to this, Vinny, was spoiled to me um, uh, straight away. Have you seen the new Bond film? No. Boom. The next words out of his mouth ruined it for me. So that's great. That's Amazing. a good start. Um, luckily, I'm not a massive Bond fan. So it was just, it was just like, a, it was more funny than irritating. Um, but yeah, so I, I again, I'm not going to do any spoilers here because again, I went into this apart from, apart from that single spoiler that was told to me. Um, I knew nothing else about the film. And I watched it and, and I suppose... Yeah, I'll talk about the film first before I talk about the, the arc of, of Craig's Bond. So um, I think you've covered this recently. So yeah, it, I just wanted to say that I I enjoyed it, but it was very much felt like it was back to being a Bond film after the the the, 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 the smaller, more microscopic look at familiar life in Skyfall 
and then they try to bring it back out inspector which to me was just it just didn't it didn't work for me as a film really uh, and, and it felt bloated whereas this is is another long film but it seems like it seems like the best way to wrap something like a, 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 like a his time as Bond up because it base it calls back to like everything back to Casino Royale, which is what like fifteen years ago, and and says right this is you know, we're, we're doing this whole arc we're going to kind of give a bit of a nod to everything and wrap it up, mm-hmm. and, and I thought on and it really worked as that, and, and but it, it did feel much more like a typical Bond film to me than than the others have been which is which is good i think because yeah maybe it's a gentle way of bringing it bringing it bringing it back full circle uh i i did i did with rami malek's character i was very aware it felt like he was almost like on the wrong set there was a touch of the robert darvey about him in more ways than one now that i say that out loud um <laughs> But there was something about how I just thought, how many more whispering madmen can we have, really? You know, slightly kooky whispering madmen were misguided. Um, I I liked it. I liked liked the final, the final reel. I I, I liked Rami Malek in it. I just thought this feels massively theatrical. Um, And I liked how ridiculous. I mean, we're back to effectively like, you know, volcano bases, I thought. It's a proper lair, isn't it? Yeah. So I, I liked it. But I'm not emotionally invested enough in Bond as a franchise to say that I would like for, for if I was to watch, I'm more inclined to watch one of Pierce Brosnan's Bond films that I feel like I skipped over, like um, Tomorrow Never Dies or Die Another Day. Yeah. Because I feel like with Daniel Craig's Bond, I could watch Casino Royale pretty regularly. Yes. Um, I, I could and then I would watch Skyfall when I want something a bit more heavy duty. Um, and then I may watch this once or twice more, but like Quantum mm-hmm. of Solace Spectre. They feel like DLC. They feel like they feel like they don't really need to be there. Um, so yeah, I, I I like No Time to Die, but I I got to be fair. Going, I watched this the morning after I watched the Batman, and I think in my head I was still reeling from how much I really enjoyed that film. Yeah, and they both still so measure up at that point. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I really liked his his Bruce Wayne as well. By the way, I, I liked the uh, his Bruce Wayne. Uh, but but. Yeah, we're going back to another film now. Yeah. Yes. So no, no time to die. I, I just think it's. I'd be interested to know what a real Bond fan felt. In fact, if you are like a Bond fan and you wanted to talk about that, you could send us a, a voicemail or or a message to the men who the men who talk at outlook dot com because I I know that you said I don't know if you wanted. To, I mean, I can edit this out if you don't want to mention it. But you talked to me about Laszlo's views on it um a, a week yeah. or so ago. Yes how the ending kind of it, it kind of um I, I don't want to put words in his mouth but it changes the way that he perceives bond's continuation shall we say over the generations uh, yeah that's about all i can really say <laughs> but yeah, yes because it is quite a bold ending I personally, I found it very satisfying. I thought it was a, what needed to be done in a way to, I could, well, apart from anything, yeah. Um, yeah. Let me see. There was a there was a mild, a very, a very mild clearing of the throat in my case because, like I said, I wasn't as invested as I no, I didn't. should have been, or I, I just thought I, I was sort of on board with it. It felt right to me. Yes, it felt it felt right. I think throughout 
the they probably made one or two films too many in the series, but that might just be because they're bad films. I mean, Quantum of Solace like, is not good <laughs> by any means, <laughs> but at least it's short. Spectre didn't even have the good grace to be short. That's all from Sam Mendes, ladies and gentlemen. Um, yeah, I, I, I do think as well that there was there were some points in this because because of Rami Malek's performance and his character that w- there were some moments when he was monologuing the Bond. I genuinely expected, and the camera kept cutting the Bond with just just staring at him. I expect him to just say, "Can you shut up? Just shut your mouth, or just punch him or something?" Because I thought. It, like it felt like he was so his character was so at odds with like where with with Daniel Craig's Bond at that time like yeah. the way he's so standoffish and flippant with everything and yet he's willing to sit through lengthy bollocks monologues from someone he actively despises for no no real reason nothing to his benefit no. No. um yeah it just thought just punch him in the face really um so yeah that was that was no time to die uh where is that? That that must be on Prime at the moment because they've got all the bonds. They've, they've, they've got the all the bonds on there. Yeah, obviously Timothy Dalton, my mother's favourite Bond. But I, yeah, I may I, need I, to dip into the Pierce Brosnan ones again. Oh, maybe a bit of Timothy as well. Well, you can go straight from Tim to Pierce, can't you? Really, yeah. because they they lead on. So I mean, I think I'm pretty much done with Connery and Moore. I've got to say. Yeah, yeah I, I have no like no no nostalgia, and like I said, I'm not a massive. No. I I look at them as independent films as opposed to a franchise. I you know they like the way they follow on doesn't really interest me. I'm just well, I'm just to be entertained for two hours. They were episodic as well back then. To be fair, I mean it wasn't like it wasn't really an arc, was it? With Connery or Moore, it wasn't really like with Daniel Craig. It's like it is very clear arc across the films but that's the way things are these days isn't it so has to be an arc has to be a a meta universe um yeah i'm going to talk about the king's speech which is on disney plus and prime um and this is a historical drama made in 2010 by tom hooper of les mis fame and cats notoriety but he also did make the excellent i think it was hbo miniseries with paul Giamatti called john adams that was good anyway this film king's speech uh, stars colin firth who plays bertie who's a prince with a severe speech impediment stutter now when king george v dies and bertie's brother edwards decides to marry wallace simpson instead of ruling england Bertie becomes King George VI and his stutter is crippling, but he needs to unite the country, especially as it's about to go to war with Germany. So Bertie employs a basically a pseudoscientist called Lionel Logue, played by Geoffrey Rush, who's a self-made speech therapist, uses these unconventional methods to achieve his results. And he's a shock to Bertie's system and they become these sort of conflicting friends. Is 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 just for my my so I understand the rest of this review you're gonna do. When you yes. say unconventional methods, is that read as total bollocks? Or is there <laughs> Um no, I mean you can see the method in the madness sort of thing. Uh, and you know, he's not uh, he, he kind of assumes that he's a legit doctor at first. Uh, it's not too much of a spoiler to say that he later finds out that Actually, he just hasn't got any qualifications at all, but he gets results. But 
question is, is it enough to enable Bertie to make his big speech and bring the country together? So this is a very beautiful film and has these gorgeous shots of these huge banks of fog shrouding London. Um, which I think is quite is quite a nice visual motif as well, because it kind of reflects the sense of confinement and lostness that the king feels. But so, I mean, it, Tom Hooper, he brings the aesthetic at least above a Sunday night ITV drama, basically, which is very much could be. But the performances are good as well. Um, although, as always, with like royal dramas, I, I they feel a tad limited because they're obviously bound by this unspoken oath not to really mess with the royal family. Reason I don't watch The Crown, to be honest. Um, but, for example, okay, so Edward, Edward the uh, Eighth, maybe? Guy Pierce. So he comes to the throne. Um, well, he abdicates the throne pretty soon afterwards, ostensibly to marry Wallace Simpson. Um, but in reality like Edward and Wallace, they were quite clearly Nazi sympathizers and they were basically dumped in the Bahamas to avoid any kind of scandal. It doesn't mention any of that stuff. It's just like, oh, I better, yeah, we'll get off the throne. See you later. It's like, well, it's okay. Um, but yes, yeah, so this is definitely a film that focuses more on the heartwarming, crowd-pleasing elements of the royal dynasty and it is very selective with its history in order to hit a series of pretty predictable Hollywood-type notes, I suppose. Uh, so it goes for a more gentle kind of odd couple dramedy tone, which is fine, I guess. And it does provide some amusing scenes like like where Bertie is told to use expletives to fill any pauses or or there's a quite a moving scene where he has to. The only way he can like express this dark revelation from his past is by singing it. So it's like. It's a terrible thing he's saying, but the only way he can actually explain it is by like singing a really happy, singing it in a really happy tune. So those moments are really cool, and it does look cinematic, but I do think the actual content of it is a little bit. It is just pretty much a Sunday night period drama, but with better lighting and more steady camera. Really, I think it's also a little bit scuppered by. I think it fails to properly properly identify the stakes to a modern audience because to a modern audience, the value of the King's address isn't actually made that clear. Like, I guess because it wants to avoid showing the sheer existential horror of Hitler. Um, it's not quite clear what the stakes are, if you see what I mean. Like, I mean, obviously we know, like, obviously Hitler was bad, but it's like clearly the it, it, the kind of unity of the country rests on this one speech. So it's like it's almost like you need to see more of the opponent, to see what he's up against. If you see what I mean. But um, yeah, overall, it's very British in its manners, I would say, and very Hollywood in its focus. If that makes sense. It is a very royalist crowd pleaser. And well, that stuff's ten a penny, isn't it? Really, I just never find it that interesting. So it's not really. It's a film that I would describe as a pearl fondler, like a lesser pearl clutcher. Right, yes, mm. <laughs> a, yeah, a pearl stroker, perhaps. <laughs> so yeah, from now on, 
every time you mention anything with Colin Firth in it is is a, is a pearl fondler or a pearl stroke, yeah. Okay. Or a pearl, pearl disco- it's never a pearl discoverer. Um, yeah, I, I, it's hard for me to sort of like have anything, any input to that because I find those films like inherently boring. Ever since I watched like The Duchess and stuff, I just think, oh god. I would say that Tom Holland does a good job of making it not as boring as it could be, because he Tom, has an int- Tom Hooper, sorry, Tom not Hooper, me. sorry, Tom Holland. Um, I, I think he does a good job of making it, you know, more v- visually exciting than normal. It's not. It hasn't got that quite dull, stately look that you get. With people kind of love <laughs> the kind of Downton Abbey type, um, type thing. So it's yeah. We we are just watching people have this really opulent, gifted lifestyle, and then they're complaining about like mild, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> mild issues that like aren't really. Yeah, I know what you mean. So. Well, that's a shame. You've watched a few of these, actually. I noticed that you watched um, the one with... Um, oh, I'm going to do it wrong again. Kristen Stewart? Kristen, oh, Kristen Stewart. Uh, was, yeah, what was that called? Spencer. Yeah. So you, that was quite you, boring. You've you, you gone through like a mountaineering uh, moment. <laughs> Are you going through like a royalist movement now? Is that what I, I, I think that's pretty much it. I'm not sure I could face another one of them. Oh really? That's it. So it was like a two mm. film, a two film. Uh, that was it, and I'm done. Two film die. Well, I can lead on from that quite nicely actually, because you mentioned Guy Pearce, whom I fancy, and I watched yes. for the second time is 2012 film Lockout, which is Ooh. on Amazon Prime. Mm. Now saw this, this at the cinema. Oh really? It did get to the cinema. Yes. <laughs> so it was good to know. Um, yeah, I, I watched this years, years and years and years ago. Um, back when I, I, I think I only watched Guy Pearce in LA Confidential, and then this. And so I thought, well, he's obviously amazing. Then, of course, since then I've watched, you know, The Rover and a couple of other films. It's been. I thought, yeah, I really do like Guy Pearce and Ravenous. It's one of my favourite films, and I've watched it many times, and I'm gonna have to watch it again now that I've reminded myself of it. And I need the soundtrack on vinyl as well. So I, yeah, I, I really like Guy Pearce, and, and so it was really nice from going into this. The originally when I watched it in 2012, it just as like an action film. Now I went in as like an an active spurned lover of Guy Pearce as well. So it was it, it um, and I gotta say, I'm just gonna check how long it is. Oh, please be under oh, 95 minutes. I will pretend we'll pretend that six minutes of credits and say it's under 90 minutes of gold because that's what it felt like a really pacey, silly action film, which is exactly what I wanted. So <clears> pacey, <throat> it doesn't even explain how he gets back to Earth, really, does it? Hang on, let me think and just think of the ending now. <laughs> well, on, it, uh, does, uh, it gives him a method, but it doesn't show any of it. So it's like <laughs> he's like, I'm off. Oh, oh, I'm back on Earth. All right, okay. Should okay. probably explain what the actual plot is before. They were obviously they were obviously taking inspiration from the Batman and just thinking, well, let's not get bogged down in intricacies. Uh, yeah. See, the, the the plot is that again, they don't explain why they're so. Pardon me, like why they're so focused on Guy Pierce's character. He is, he is someone who they don't even you don't even know if he's like he's obviously very capable. But we don't know if he's ex-Russian forces, ex-police, or if he's just a thief. We don't know anything apart from the fact he has been accused of shooting an undercover colonel uh, who is uh, trying to get um, trying to get information about a mole who's selling secrets. And 
they just say, right, you're off to what's it called? MS1, Maximum Security 1, which is a prison in space. And he is just, I think it's 30 years in cryogenic stasis, effectively. And he just go, he's supposed to go up there, frozen 30 years, get sent back down. Boom, that's it. Uh, Lenny James and Peter Stamari are sort of work for the government. And what happens is Maggie Grace, who's the president's daughter, gets sent up there to do almost a it's almost under sort of charity mission to show that these the prisoners are being mistreated and they're not it's there's other things going on like it's being used smuggling or something that part of the film i, I can't remember because it's not important and effectively one of the prisoners that she says oh, i just need to speak to them to make sure everything's you know hunky-dory he and the character he is he, he's a really good character actually he's really full-on i think it's joe gilgan is his name mm. yes joe gilgan um who is just this insane Scottish prisoner who uh, instantly just gets out, starts killing people, takes her hostage, brings out a lot of other prisoners, and they effectively hold her hostage. And Guy Pearce is taken out of cryogenic stasis as he's the only one up there who can help. Um, Joe Gilgan, he's he is a talented actor. He's from some people may have seen him in This Is England. He's like the funny guy in This Is England, funny older guy who befriends the kid. In this is England. Really good in that. I can imagine him being quite chameleonic because mm. in this he is just I don't know. There's just something about it. He, the, his frame, his mannerisms mm. reminded me a little bit of, and I'm gonna forget his name now. The guy who was in uh, Revolver was the only interesting thing about Revolver. That the, the to- yeah. Toby he was in Warcraft as well. Oh, Toby Kebble. Kebble? Toby Kebble, yeah, that sort of like really lean, slightly like hooked yeah. frame, and that that obviously in Revolver he was just high all the time, and it it, it gave me that same vibe, and I quite like. Is he completely bonkers in Lockout as well? Oh yeah, he uh, yeah he is he's insane and, in this. And yeah. I, is he is he the prop? Is he the bad guy? He's I seem to remember he's like. Yeah, he he, he is he, he he is effectively Vincent Regan who plays the the sort of the, the older boss of the inmates who's kind of taking charge of everything he's his insane younger brother who is such yes such a so wild that he just puts everything at risk at every step of the way yeah so he probably is a bit bit of a comedian because in this is england he's just so benign and such a good-hearted soul so it's like yeah that's interesting i have to check out more of his filmography anyway he could be a keeper but yeah so so the, the film is um I think what I like about this is I think if you go into this and you're just watching it, you would just think this is just a really bog standard, like low budget action film. But if you go in there as a fan of of Guy Pearce, it kind of elevates it. And yes. it is ridiculous, like the, 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 the beatings he takes and, and not so much the beatings he takes, the beatings he takes and how much his quips, <laughs> his quips, Joe don't alter like he is getting lamped in the face over and over again and he's still every time he pops back up to the floor like, like fewer teeth he's still like oh got another got another corker cover view you though just say i don't give a shit what's happening and it is silly but i think it's that sort of level of silliness that that makes it work there's there's a few moments in this considering it's a silly action film where and i'm just more aware of this recently just be just because it's 2022 when um like the, the their approach to just 
like using rape as a threat and mm. it does work in the context of the film because it is a load of prisoners but it, it just seems you know when you've got a film like this a silly action movie with a, like a you know a, an, an anti-hero quipping away and then they're throwing in lines like i'm just gonna let all the prisoners like go at you as a pack and gang rape you you're like mm. eh. I don't know. I like obviously that's realistic. I, I suppose it will yeah, always but, feel, but it doesn't need to go there. I know what you mean. Like it's when a kind of silly, but otherwise quite like harmless action film just has quite a, a menacing undercurrent. Sometimes I'm thinking of that. I want to say uh, Olympus has fallen. Is that what it's called? The one with um, Gerard uh, Butler. Gerard Butler. Yeah, or was and it the one with the other one? The um, no, the the other one was oh, the OK one. That was the Roland Emmerich one. That was that uh, didn't turn into a trilogy. What? Yeah, but Olymp- I remember Olympus Fallen having this really unpleasant misogynistic undercurrent uh, to it, which kind of detracted from you know just the kind of silly action, the absurdity of the rest of it, and then it's kind of vicious, <laughs> like misogynistic aspects to it yeah because it, it's, it's so quite much. it's quite clear like they've got her up there with a lot of prisoners it's quite implicit like the danger that she's in kind like, of don't need yeah yeah even if they were just like terrorists or whatever you don't need to like highlight that aspect um and yeah there's a couple of moments that it, it's almost like the film's so pacey there's a few moments you think what like there's a moment where um maggie grace who is is the, the president's daughter is, is in a room and it's the, something gets damaged and she's with a bodyguard from the secret service and they they, they get trapped in this room and the, the oxygen's dropping and he says okay just take shallow breaths and you know hopefully help will come and then he just blows his brains out in front of it and and, she, and, I, and, I, and I had to rewind it because i thought because the way she reacts is like she doesn't scream she just sort of just starts breathing slower and i thought I was like locked in a room with someone. And they said, "Right, you know," and and the thing is, it doesn't. His 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 um sacrifice doesn't really make sense because she. It's like obviously clear that there's like moments of oxygen left, and they're in this like seemingly yeah. hopeless situation, not realizing the guy Pierce is crawling through the vents. So they could have just like snuggled up and sort of like slowly peacefully died together because there's like it's kind of hinted there's like a, a like a, a relationship there yeah. but he just literally just stands in front of her says right breathe slower and stay close to the floor and you know you might last a bit longer and then just kills himself so, <laughs> like, okay um yeah and uh it, it is amusing how much it, it is it, it's really amusing how much the um vincent regan is the sort of lead the, the well the, the supposed leader of the inmates how he keeps on getting these like quite practical plans in place to to like get like a group of them free and get back to a sort of thing and you mm. using her as leverage and then how um uh joe gilgan's character his younger brother will just completely throw things up just by being insane and not being able to stop himself killing people <laughs> and you think oh my god just kill him just like just say right tie him up or just don't let him run around with a massive magnum because that's the problem right that's the problem here um so yeah it, it, it is it is a funny film there's a subplot about peter stamari trying to sort of overthrow the president and and in, and instill himself um in power and it, it feels like why is that why is that a plot here that's not what mm-hmm. i'm focusing on um but it's so kind of briefly done. It's not really a problem. But yeah, I think this is just a, a good, a, a solid action film that wasn't filmed in Romania on industrial estate for once. I may need to watch it again because I remember it being pretty average when I first saw it. But 
I don't know. Um, it depends how much you fancy guy face. I'd say lower your bar. Go in there when you're like thinking. I'm, I just want to like chuck something on it and have have fun for ninety minutes and push aside all the dodgy sexual yeah. politics and off your trot. I think it, maybe it was affected by the fact that I did see it at the cinema. The fact that it got to the cinema, I think I would have felt more comfortable with it if it'd been straight to video. Frankly, it and then my expectations was like a straight to video film. Yeah. Where, where um, is it? Where is it available? Uh, this was on Netflix. I just want to say as well, that before we move on from it, that um, it was Lockout 2012. It's a story by Luc Besson, but it's directed by Stephen St. Ledger and James Mather. Right. A French court ruled the film plagiarizes the plot of Escape from New York in the sequel. And when I read that, I thought, because it is literally a man being sent into like a, you know like mm-hmm. a, 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 prison, a prison just in space to rescue yeah. rescue like the president of the president's order bring it's him back fortress out. meets escape from new york yeah i can understand it but what tickled me was looking at the legal action entry on wikipedia mm-hmm. so it says i'm just going to read this out right so in 2015 john director john carpenter successfully sued the filmmakers alleging that Lockup plagiarized his films escape from new york and escape from la the court awarded him damage of twenty thousand euros Escape from New York screenwriter Nick Castle got 10,000 euros and 50,000 euros was given to Metro Goldwyn Mayer. After Besson's appeal was rejected in July 2016, his appeal was rejected. They got another 450,000 euros, right? So basically, John Carpenter went to court. Luke Besson was there and they sort of high-fived. And then John Carpenter said, it's mine. The story's mine. Mm. And then they said, fair enough, here's 20 grand. And then Luke Best went, no, 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 come on, come on now, come on now, let's go back to court. And they went back to court, and John Carpenter said, right, the story's mine. And he went, ah, oh, fair enough. <laughs> and then and they just had to pay over another half a million euros. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, my, it's mine, it is. It's mine, yeah. so, it's uh, same answer as before, mate. Yeah, yeah. really, just, just going to get a lot more money this time. Um, so, yeah, uh, that was that's Lockout. Excellent. I will watch that again. Um, I watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit on Disney Plus. Good. No question mark in the title. I'm trying to work out whether that's correct. Who Framed Roger I guess it's not a question. It's not like Who Framed Roger Rabbit? It's no, it is like, a question, isn't it? It's, um, it is it's, a question. This, hmm. is like the, this is like the, the shop what... Well, you can't say it without an exclamation mark. Like, who framed Roger Rabbit? For a start, the sentence begins with the word who. So it's a question, isn't it? I suppose you could argue that it's like, this is the person who framed Roger Rabbit. If you see what I mean. It's a statement. Anyway, 1988, this was made. And this was the first film I remember having any real impact on me at the cinema. I don't think it was the first one I saw, but it's the first one that really had an impact. It's a combination of live action film and Looney Tunes animation, basically. They're sharing the same space. It's directed by Robert Zemeckis, who always likes to push the technological envelope. And it was a massive risk at the time, actually. And I think Disney shit themselves a bit and they halved the budget. And it actually ended up being one of the year's top earners. And some say it began the Disney renaissance, which was a little mermaid, really, which would kick it off the next year. But it's a good start. It it was actually released. This was actually released under the Touchstone Pictures label because it's 
and that makes sense because it's really not for young kids it's set in the 1940s and the basic plot is that roger rabbit who is a cartoon has been framed for a murder and bob hoskins plays a pi who is employed to prove that roger never did it basically and find out who did do it the twist in all this is that the human world sits alongside toontown uh which is obviously completely made of cartoons most of the time we're in the human world and it's sort of occupied by some tunes but um oh bobby hoskins he does he does visit the toontown place and it's quite amusing that the rules the kind of whole rules of physics just totally change as soon as he goes there anyway what's awesome is that despite all this kind of like um obviously technological tomfoolery what's awesome is that the plot is actually good enough that it would make a decent detective thriller anyway so that's the key to it like with batman yes it takes essentially two staples of 1940s cinema which is detective noir and slapstick cartoons and smashes them together and it's quite a bizarre choice and when you think about it it's like it was just like late 80s it's not like anyone would have any particular um nostalgia i suppose for especially noir but but i guess cartoons those looney tunes cartoons never got out of fashion really do they bob hoskins was apparently like the thousandth choice for the main role but he totally nails it uh harrison ford was apparently the first choice uh, I he can see too, that he seems too grouchy. Possibly, although he is—I mean, he is a grouchy character. But there's something about Bob Hoskins' frame, and he's kind of looks the a bit portliness. Yeah. yeah, it's the yeah, and the fact that he's such a sort of schlub, and and of course the American accent he tends to use anyway is like a really thick New York accent anyway, so it works pretty well. Apparently as well, Tim Curry was the original choice for the bad guy. Um, Christopher Lloyd actually is obviously the bad guy in this, but Tim Curry was the original choice. But he was, it turned out he was too terrifying. So they didn't want to use him, which I can imagine. I mean, it's scary enough anyway in this when, especially towards the end, when Christopher Lloyd kind of mm, starts transforming, shall we say. But um, Tim Curry doing it, bloody hell. Yeah, so it's as a film, it's a technical marvel, and it always will be because it's not going for realism. Um, it's not really going for perfect integration. It's, and hand-drawn animation never goes out of style. Can, it's can never sort of superseded that, that, in the way that CGI is. If you see. Yeah, no, just one quick thing because I'm really happy to talk about this. But I just wanted, while you're talking about the, um, the special effects and animation. <laughs> I was um, when it comes to eye contact, because obviously now they use like, you know, whatever on a like a stick and a tennis ball. And mm-hmm. you know, there's so many special effects now. What's it? Because this film is so manic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I just wondered because I don't know if you remember, Rupert, but if you, when you watch this film, Bob Hoskins sweats. Uh, he, he, sweat, he sweats. And um, he is acting. I, 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 I think that's that's the key thing as well is um, Bob Hoskins. He's not he's a, an actor that's not afraid to make himself look foolish. He's yes. not there to look at he's a, he throws himself into it. But but sorry, aside from that, what is it like when he's making eye contact with all these tunes? It's um and they clearly have it sounded like an absolute nightmare to film, but because 
clearly they have to have some kind of markers on the screen. And there are times when, like, say a cartoon will be holding uh, a kind of real world gun, for example, and you can see it, it's it seems to be like on a string or something hanging up and it has a kind of like floatiness to it. So it's obviously floating around, but it's like, and it's, all that's so surreal anyway. It kind yes. Of works. And he's acting, you think about it, like there's moments when he's like grabbing Roger rabbit by the neck and stuff and like struggling with him. And it's all just a physical performance by him. But then I think it never, I suspect if you just stared at the live actor then you'd probably notice, you know, some inconsistencies or, or whatever. But because whenever there is that struggle going on or whatever, your eyes are always fixed on the kind of crazy rabbit struggling to get free. And, sure. and like it must make it more places. impressive because this is we, we're like watching the recent Sonic movie, for example, where mm. James Miles and like, there's not really any physical interaction apart from him carrying him under a blanket or whatever. But yeah. this is this is. This is Bob Hoskins like very much interacting physically true, with actually. a lot of things. So it's, I, I'm quite. I think that's why I've always been impressed by it. I think that's why I've always loved his performance in this. Yeah, and I suppose this. Yes, because there's so much interaction. Yeah, it does seem like thinking about it, there is. It does seem like there's more interaction. Maybe you just notice the interaction more because, because, it effectively the only bit that's being done in post is that you just putting the character in there like all of it is very physical all the stuff that's happening around him like if he kind of like is having a scrap with roger rabbit and he swings him across the room and roger rabbit like will knock a bunch of papers off the desk or something all of that has to be kind of like triggered in camera if you see what i mean and it's so cleverly done that you're kind of like constantly thinking how how did they do that because he, you know there's no physical entity there and yet physical stuff has to happen on screen it's really clever but but i also think it's just a really really cool story and i think it's just an exceptional film genuinely funny as well so really holds up oh i thought you i i for some reason i thought we were going to talk about that for the next 45 minutes then i'd be fine with that yeah no i i I really do like roger rabbit and i think it is absolutely terrifying at the ending like i remember it like shaking me to my core as a child and i think even it it, it's a film was that on a a streaming service by the way yes on disney plus yeah yeah i have to watch that again i think my son's young enough to not understand how frightened his father is when i watch it with him (laughs) so i i feel like i can get away with that hold me son (laughs) um but um yeah, no, I, I I do remember that film being, and and watching it, uh, it's one of those films I've walked in a lot uh, uh, when it's sort of a quarter, half the way through, and you just impulsively have to watch the rest of it because yes. it it is so impressive, and like you say, it's it will continue to be impressive because it's not like it's not like when you're looking at the taxi cabs in King Kong top down when they just yes. this appears to be the first Grand Theft Auto. It, it's it's something that is of its time. Anyway, I watched Cool World. I didn't. <laughs> I just, uh, I want. I've never seen it. I, as you were talking with Roger Rabbit, I was thinking you were talking. I thought, what's that game? I remember playing a game on the Amiga that came on about four hundred thousand discs, <laughs> and it was crap. And and oh. yeah, is the film bad then? Uh, I, it's, I don't think I've seen it since it came out. I mean, it was bad. It's Brad Pitt, ninety two, so it's yeah. four years later. So. Oh my yeah. god! 
remember Bradford's hair. Astonishing. It's directed by Ralph Bakshi, which is a name that rings a bell for some reason. He did the slightly creepy rotoscoped Lord of the Rings. I think he did a version of The Hobbit as well. I think his Lord of the Rings only made it like halfway through the books, though. So, yeah. Um, yeah, he did He did some weird 80s animation. He may even have done that. Did he do heavy metal? Which is, again, a weird 80s animation. He might have done. I'll have to find out. If you move on, I'll, I'll do my research while we're, while we're Here's talking. his Wikipedia entry. is lengthy, by the way. I don't know why I know the name of Ralph Bakshi. He's obviously done something that's stuck in my mind, but I'm on now. Television. <laughs> the Savalas. Um, yeah, I still don't know what it is about him. that Because Ralph Bakshi is a very familiar name. Anyway, yeah, like I said, I'll... Um, yeah, I'll let you do your research and I'll go back to that. So I'm going to instead talk about the hardcore... Sorry. Which is heavy traffic is actually the film. Not well, not metal. heavy metal. Yeah, you've covered that before on the podcast. Yeah, haven't you? yeah it's there quite is disturbing about. actually. But anyway, yeah, sorry, go on. Is that streaming? Because I think that's another one I should have watched about well, three years ago. It may be. I'll have to do further research. I must have seen it somewhere. I wouldn't have paid for it. <laughs> I wouldn't have paid cash money for it. Um, so I watched the hardcore, which is a 2006 film. Um, directed by Sheldon Lettich, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme, uh, Vivica A. Fox. Um, this was, I sometimes have these moments where I stare into the middle distance and think, where did, when did Jean-Claude Van Damme go wrong? And it's not Legionnaire. So I know it's between Legionnaire and Hardcore um, now. So I've watched this, and this is a film where uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme is a, is a soldier recovering from PTSD uh, from his the time in Afghanistan and he is just uh, sort of he's, he's in a VA hospital effectively and he, he's almost out for the count just, complete, just completely shaken by experiences and he, his commanding officer puts together a team uh, to, to look out for this uh, it's a rapper, effectively a rapper. Sorry, not a rapper. It's a it's a boxer turned businessman, like a legit mm-hmm. businessman who's trying to turn around his community, and and Joe Clavandam is like, I really don't want to do this. I just want to sort of wallow. And his command officer says, Well, that's not really going to be good for anyone, is it? So come out, do this job, and get back in the game, and you you'll realize that the skills you have, you can you can work in civilian life and and you know ha- have an actual existence. Um, and I thought, okay, so this is you know going to be him as a bodyguard sort of thing. But what actually happens with the film, and this is a two-minute trashing, is he comes out with his commanding officer, and they have to look after this 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 boxer turned businessman, and his he has been hired. They've been hired by the businessman's sister, Vivica A. Fox, and just says, keep a total low profile. He doesn't want bodyguards. He wants to show he's a man of the people, totally all good. So just keep, just keep your distance and, um, uh, you know, and I'll pay you and then, but he'll still be protected. So the first, first like sort of protocol they have is he goes to a nightclub and just has a few drinks. That's it. They turn up wearing earpieces on those like curly wires and like holding machine guns and black turtlenecks and shades standing outside to instantly clocks them. And then they just sort of like try to get on the dance floor with him. And he says, 
you've been hired by my sister, haven't you? And then she says, yeah, actually, that didn't work out very well. So basically, they're crap, right? <laughs> they're crap. They're not slinking at the background. They're not doing their jobs. And and there's this weird part at the start when they first meet Vivica A. Fox where they leave. And he's talking to his commanding officer and saying, oh, there just wasn't, there was no chemistry there. I don't think she likes me. And I thought, well, it doesn't matter, does it? Because you're a security guard, effectively. So it doesn't matter. But he keeps on, like, like really hammering on this point that, like, oh, we had no chemistry. I don't think she fancied me. And you're like, I don't think that matters, to be honest. It's not really when you apply for a professional yeah. equation, is it? Yeah, like whatever I've gone for a job interview, um, I've never at the end of it when they say, have you got any questions? And I'm thinking about the salary, you know, I'm thinking about the moment when they said, oh, what would you see as your biggest flaw, Mr. Roberts? And I said, probably the one on my kitchen. Like, did that backfire? <laughs> I, what I don't say is, oh, do you fancy me? <laughs> so, yeah, so that happens. Yeah, and, is there something happening here? <laughs> yeah, because I've got any really trousers on. Um, So, yeah, the, the, so the, he basically gets is commanding officer gets killed in in at the end of that initial phase sort of thing and then he goes back and she takes him on as an in-house security on the basis of nothing effectively just because she feels sorry for him and this boxer turned businessman i'm gonna have to find out his name otherwise i'm gonna have to keep saying that uh i think his name is raz adoti wayne barkley so raz adoti takes him in obviously he's he's going for mayor so he's got all this money here in from professional boxing he's a legitimate businessman and he says to john claude van damme look i am incredibly protective of my sister like i take no shit and i'm a big bloke and i will kick the shit out of you if you even do anything slightly out of the ordinary anything that isn't absolutely down the line professional and john claude van damme is like no look i'm lucky to be here my commanding officer's dead. I'm here as his last, his last sort of, um, his will was for me, his di- literal dying breath was for me to, to come come out of my misery and, and do this, do this job, and I'm, I'm lucky to be here. So obviously there's instantly light floating with a gay fox. But Wayne Barkley gets called into the police station about 15 minutes into the film, and someone really hyped in the police department says to him, the reason that Jean-Claude Van Damme has PTSD is because he lost his mind in Afghanistan and blew up a school of children, right? Now, we find out later on, I don't care about spawn, we find out later on that's bollocks. But from that moment, like, that, that is true. Why, why would he be called at the police station to say, oh, we understand you've got this person's security team. This is a warning about his military history, right? Seems mm. valid. And he just says, I'll keep an eye on him. I thought, hmm. Would you though, or would you dismiss him? Would you dismiss him from a, like being in house security, looking over you as you sleep? <laughs> and so the whole film is just silly from then. But it, it's 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 not it's not a good film. It's really bloated. It's full of um, John Claude Van Damme, this like w- weird light flirtation with with this woman who just would not fancy him. There's a lot of like silly banter. And then the ending just really doesn't ring true. And it's a lot of talking. And, and Jean-Claude Van Damme, for, all of, for what he can do, what he does off cinema, what he can't do is drama. He cannot do it. What, yeah. what he does is when it's a dramatic scene is he just doesn't talk and yeah. he looks at the floor. And it's like this film is nearly... This, he's like, oh, you've upset me now, so I'm going to do the splits and look at the floor, which will be easier because I'll be closer and I've got my glasses with me. Um, <laughs> do you think um, that's how he if he drops something like some <laughs> coins on the floor do you think instead of bending over he just like, like 
<laughs> slides down and does a complete splits just to pick <laughs> up his 55p. I suppose it depends on the elasticity of his leg weight, doesn't it? Because yeah. it's easier to buy jeans and flares now with 10% like elasticity. And then, whereas before, you drop and rip and be like, that's why he's got such high trousers in the 90s. This film, I, I tore the crotch on my jeans this morning, just climbing back into bed. It was astonishing. With a stiffy, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> it just tore. Look, a massive hole in my crotch. Yeah. It means uh, It means that... It, I'd, it, obviously, you know, if I'm out in public, I don't want to be bending over. So I do the complete splits just to get yeah. down. So, the well, they, I got to bed the other day and my crotch rips. So now I better do the splits every time I have to do anything but like <laughs> below, just like looking down with my neck. Um, I I, uh, I did. I ripped my tra- the last time I ripped my trousers was in front of the concierge in our last where we, we lived last and he said oh do you want to give your hand with that and i thought he was saying do you want to give your hand with that because it was heavy it was a big parcel and i was like no nah. and then i leaned over and there was a clear ripping sound <laughs> i said oh. and i i had to walk away from him into the darkness i'm backing off <laughs> i said oh le- le- le-. he's like do you want to handle that i said no i'll be fine thanks very much lean over and then I stood up in front of him, looking him in the eye, as he looked me in the eye, like, we both know what happened. And I just backed off into darkness without saying anything. <laughs> um, those trousers, I bought them from Primark. They were tighter than my father the day before payday. <laughs> they were tighter, all fairness. Um, so, yeah, this film, a hardcore Jean-Claude Van Damme, is two hours long. Jesus. When was and it made? 2006. Yeah. So, graveyard years uh, <laughs> yeah exactly so this is post legionnaire John Gullif so yeah this is uh, this is this was not a good film uh, so don't watch this on Amazon Prime just go back and watch AWOL Absent Without Leave again um, or Lionheart depending on your region yes um, okay I watched this is another Disney Plus this is a film called Ruthless People um which I don't think I'd even really heard of before. Can I anyway. say, by the way, Disney Plus isn't very good at suggesting films. I think, like, I go into Disney Plus mm-hmm. and I watch Bad Company with Lawrence Fishburne, not that one, with Lawrence Fishburne on there. And, and I thought, oh, this is like a bit of a goldmine of like 90s thrillers. Yeah. But it doesn't throw up the right films for me. Every time I go yeah. in there, I'm like, the, the algorithm isn't there. So you seem to have a better one than me. Well, no, I th- I did have to go searching for it. And I think the issue is with the recommendations is because I use it so predominantly for uh, cartoons, animations for my son, he just assumes that that's what I love. Isn't so, your son 42 now? He's <laughs> actually, yeah. It's good thought we'd grown out of it. Anyway, um, Ruthless People is an 80s film. Um <laughs> about 86 of slap bang in the middle so yes Danny DeVito he is very wealthy and he plans to murder his wife played by Bette Midler Um, but then she's kidnapped by Judge Reinhold obviously Um, and kidnappers say they'll kill her if DeVito doesn't go along with their demands Um. Except the kidnappers are actually quite gentle people in dire straits and DeVito is a ruthless one. So it's this amusing comedy setup where Danny DeVito has like the FBI all over him, but he's subtly encouraging the kidnappers towards killing his wife. Um, and the kidnappers themselves just want money. They don't want to kill anyone. So it's quite a funny setup. 
There are various twists along the way. Cops are involved and all kinds of misunderstandings, silly coincidences. It's an old school absurdist comedy, really. Interestingly, it comes from the Zucker brothers. Good. Uh, the good. Really yeah, it's, it's Zucker Abrams who did they did Airplane and Naked Gun. Um, however, this is much more of a classical screwball farce, I'd say. Some of their broader humour is present. And actually, those moments are the weakest moments like this is a really tedious bit where bet Midler is doing these impressions of the various ways that judge reinhold might receive capital punishment and it's like uh it's just she's going through a list of like oh hanging and gassing and doing impressions of them and it's like it's kind of tedious indulgence i'd expect to see in a modern comedy to be honest um the twisty plot contrivances and the fast elements are much more enjoyable like it's especially that juxtaposition between like a really malevolent Danny DeVito and the very sweet-natured Judge Reinhold. Bill Pullman is in this, and he plays this amusingly stupid henchman as well. There's one point where he's he's pointing his gun at someone in the street, and the cops shout over a loud hailer to, for him to put the gun down, and he just looks around nervously and goes, who said that? And it's quite funny. I like that bit. Um, <laughs> so there's this whole... Um, subplot with this misunderstanding with like a sex tape which is misconstrued as a a murder video and it's very crude and it does push the film into 70s sex fast territory unfortunately but if nothing else this film is a good reminder of how good a comedy actor Danny DeVito is and it's also unbelievably rampantly 80s like Danny DeVito's house is grotesque in its like clashing colours and <laughs> ugly modernist artwork. And, and one of the kidnappers is actually um, a wannabe fashion designer as well. And you can imagine what cutting edge fashion looked like in 1986. Mick Jagger is, does. Is the it theme Brian song. Thompson? Oh, Mick Jagger. Oh, okay. Mick Jagger does. He does the theme song to this. The instruments may or may not be synthesised in that particular song. Um, I think you can guess which. Um, it's not exactly essential viewing, but I did find it quite enjoyable because of its concept and its casting, really. And everyone's on the same page and it's nicely plotted. It's just don't go into it expecting like Naked Gun or Top Secret. It's closer to Blake Edwards or something, really. So I enjoyed it. I thought it was well, right. the, that's um, that's even better for me, really, because I like yeah. Blake Edwards films. So, yeah, I, I, it's nice to discover a new film from the 80s, isn't it? Yes, which isn't just terribly, horribly dated. Well, it is dated, but in a kind of endearing way, not in a unpleasant sexual politics kind of way. <laughs> uh, no. So what was that called again? Sorry. And where was it available? It's called Ruthless People, and it's on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, I have to watch that with my fists, I think. Um, I watched The Expendables trilogy in a single day because, <sighs> yeah, I, well, I just thought, I realise, um, well, if anything, it'll be good fuel for my mind for future Arkin stars. And yeah, that's true. It, it's it was an interesting one. I'm just going to sort of sum them all up in a, in a couple of minutes. Really, is obviously the 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 main this 2010, 2012, 2014, and now effectively eight years on 2022 for for the Expendables four. Okay. Sty, sty, stylized as EXPEND. For BLES. What? That's right. 
expend foibles. It's foible. That's the kind of foibles. That's the kind of shit that we had to put up with 15 years ago, quite frankly. Um, So, uh, just this is just a general summary of of the trilogy because I I watched them all on the same day and I really focused on them as well because I thought I've seen each of these when they released and not since. And as a as a as a fan of action movies, I thought, oh, that must be quite telling, really, that I've never Mm. revisited these when I'm just thinking, oh, what should I check on? And that that is true. The the first one is pretty bad, like it's. It's obvious. I'm, I'm just assuming everyone. So, so the plot of the Expendables is it's uh, Sylvester Stallone as, as Barney Ross. He's uh, leads a mercenary team of uh, you've got like Jet Li, uh, Jason Statham as Lee Christmas. They've all got silly names. Jet Li's is Yin Yang, um, and Gunnar Hansen with Dolph Lundgren, Randy Couture, so on and so forth. Terry Crews, and they just go off and do stuff effectively. Each film is. Why are we doing this mission? Oh, this is why. <laughs> Usually because Sylvester Stallone fancies someone, and then they go back and they take up, you know, um, like a local militia or whatever. Fine, right? The, the plot is like so bare bones, it's totally fine. But they, they, every film they scupper it. It's mm-hmm. impressive how scuppered it is. So the first one is is kind of scuppered by. They obviously thought, and I think the first one is directed by Sylvester Stallone as well, that they can get on all these people, like um, Mickey Rourke, Terry Crews, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Gary Daniels. Why Gary did he Daniels know shows up, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, and just point the camera at them, like have a plot. And there's so many scenes in this film where someone's, they're in it, they're like, you know, camping around a campfire, and someone will say a really bad joke, and then... And then it'll cut to the reaction shots of the rest of the team, and they're all like doing this awkward laugh, mm. and it doesn't it doesn't stop, it doesn't stop. I, at the start, I thought obviously that's like an interaction, an introduction to the team. No, no, no. For for the rest of the two hours, every time someone says something, it'll cut around the, the you know the um the table sort of thing to everyone reacting to that that brilliant joke, and then Sylvester Stone will say oh blah, blah blah, and then they'll all laugh at that. And you think this is like a crap eighties comedy. This is yeah. a badly written eighties comedy. Do not. These are not people you do not point a camera and expect laughs. These no. are people who will like you. They take their tops off, and I'm jealous. That's what you should be doing. So yeah, and they take things seriously. That was that was what that was appealing about them. They were like dead serious, really, weren't they? They weren't doing comedy. Like no, not never... at all. It was they were they were they weren't they were you know all of these people involved at some point had a film where they were the other tops off. They had a massive gun in their hands and they shouted in slow motion as they fired those guns. Like that's what people are Pretty here legit. for. And so the the film rocks on and there are some like nice moments in it. Um, Jason Statham is as dependable as ever and is the most kinetic. Although. The way the first Expendables films ends had my head in my hands as he, they do the job they're supposed to do. Mm. And then the, he's good with knives, right? So all the way through the film, there's this hint that him and Mickey Rourke have this thing where they throw knives at um, a board, like a dartboard sort of thing. <clears throat> and yeah. on the way out, the ending, and I, I remembered it, and I remembered it, and I put my finger in my mouth and bit it so that I know how bad this is. He just starts saying this really bollocks poem, like a limerick, and mm. spinning a knife around, and it ends with him throwing it through them all, you know, as like a throwing it through them all as a POV shot. And I and and I don't know who wrote that end that sequence. It is dreadful. 
it is and it, it, it is dreadful then and it ages worse it is awful to watch now and so going into expendables 2 with with, with john claude van damme is is the main villain i was thinking kick a knife into someone's chest at one point he kicks a knife into what's the the thor liam hemsworth's chest oh, yeah, yeah. yeah um as we all do at some point but it, it's it's a bit darker it's like at least they've got a reason and there's a bit of misery to it which is good because the fact that obviously one of them has been killed it, it's good in a way because it puts them on the back foot and it it, it it gives a layer of misery to the proceedings which is which is kind of the default thing wasn't it for like mm. rambo and what it, it, it's sort of ups the stakes yeah so you're like right okay everyone's like not going to be quipping all the time um or so you'd think but then, so the second film is 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 good in that respect. It's like, right, okay, this is kind of what the first one should have been. It's a bit more morose, a bit more gun-toting, um, and that's fine. Perfectly passable film. But then the third film with Mel Gibson, and Mel Gibson is quite brilliant in it because he's just, he can act. So mm. when he's when he's threatening them and what he's going to do to them, it, it works. What doesn't work is at the end when he's effectively just... Hitler in a bunker shouting orders into a microphone and you're like well you could be anyone now but when when it's one on one with him with the others it's it stands out as like yeah that that man can act these mm. people are just like doing a, a by the numbers sort of thing and the third film also spends far too much time introducing like the young bucks when the mm. the the franchise hasn't really earned it so <clears throat> like you've got the appeal of the expendables is these are a lot of action stars coming back in this old mercenary unit to to do their thing at the start, Terry Crews is taken out of it. Um, so you, you've got all these, like, Ronda Rousey and all these people in their 20s coming in and doing the thing, and you're like, well, now I've really... You've taken the interest out of the film, haven't you? You've taken the appeal away. The entire point of the film, in fact. Yeah. Like, the whole point was that it wasn't Young Bucks. You don't... Like, so it's like why, why set up a new generation in the third Expendables yeah. film when you've had one bad one, one okay one, and now this one? Um, so I can see what there's been at your gap and it really does feel like something that didn't, it's almost like a film that didn't understand its own premise or a franchise that doesn't understand its own premise mm-hmm. um, and, and when when even in the, going back to the first one when Dolph Lundgren is fighting with Jet Li and they have this sort of rivalry where they're like oh, I could have beaten you if, you know, if we hadn't been stopped and they're like yeah whatever everything is delivered so poorly that everything just seems like oh, I just feel like I'm watching people piss around Mm. so the second film is the first film is the worst the second film is decent the third film is misguided but fun and i'm intrigued to see what they're going to do with expend fables <laughs> i suspect what they're really wanting is a kind of fast and furious type um kind of resurgence in interest in the franchise it just it just need it, I just watched it and I think just like Jason Statham Kelsey Grammer was quite funny his politics do not dovetail with my own <laughs> but it, but yeah but Kelsey Grammer was quite funny in the third one and, and but then I just why are you introducing this this like new like you know young upcoming what that's not what I'm here for yeah at all and in fact if they were doing that I'd rather than just recast like Scott Adkins and, Jay, and Gary Daniels and and Stone Cold Steve Austin and just bring them back in you fine with that yeah um yeah expend four balls bloody hell 
Okay. Uh, I'll sort of keep half an eye on that, I guess. Um, <laughs> I watched Nightmare Alley, which is on Disney Plus. I my eyes are fixed on this. Is it on Disney Plus? It is. I'm watching that tomorrow morning. Hashtag just saying, regardless um, of what you say. <laughs> um, it's is Guillermo del Toro's latest, and it's based on a 1946 novel, which apparently has been adapted to film previously in the 40s so Nightmare Alley it does you see that you think and you see Guayama Tatora you think it's got to be a horror movie right you would be wrong in that assumption it's well it starts off as a pretty whimsical romance to be honest about this guy Bradley Cooper who joins a traveling circus and he falls for this pixie dream girl and and then it becomes later on a very talky gothic noir character drama kind of shifts halfway through. Um, it does find its feet in the final act, I'd say, which is where it kind of explodes into gore and melodrama. I'm just questioning how much fun it is getting to that point, though, because it's a two and a half hour movie and it really doesn't need to be. So Bradley Cooper is the uh is the main guy he he's on the run that's why he joins the circus and when he's at the circus he not only meets Rooney Mara who's the manic pixie dream girl um he he learns the trade of misdirection sort of like pretend psychics you know doing their act so a lot of that first hour is Cooper wandering around listening to people make meandering monologues including David Strathairn, thankfully. Um, and they'll say very portentous things like no man can unroute, uh, un- outrun God and stuff like that. Um, so all that kind of foreboding stuff. A lot of characters and subplots kind of feels like a truncated TV series. It's very unfocused for the first hour or so. And it ends up being quite boring, actually, to be honest. And I, I think Bradley Cooper, part of the problem is Bradley Cooper's too old to play this wide-eyed, naive kid character, kind of shocked at everything he sees, but absorbing it all. And he seems to dress like Indiana Jones for some reason. I'm not quite clear why. Um, this, especially the in that first really. hour, which I think is the weaker hour, week after the movie, there's this sentimentality which inhabits, it infects every frame. And it's in the script and it's in the plotting. It's in the kind of soft lighting, it's in the performances, in the characters, even the camera work, lots of like gentle tracking shots and zooms. And I hate that part of Del Toro. I've seen it before in stuff like Shape of Water, this kind of drippy, like innocent, saccharine sentimentality. I can't stand it. Anyway, so the film shifts anyway, as I said, like halfway through, and it kind of becomes this slow, moody, now you see me type thing. Um, and basically, he's got this double act with. Did Rooney you just Mara. say now you see me? Yes. So because there's a kind of a magical element to it, or a magic show element to it. Yeah, but that film was shit, Rupert. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, but it's kind of the same thing where it's like uh, it's all part of that kind of deception is what gets them in trouble. If you see what I mean. Right. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. So. So they're basically grifters, really, in the city. And 
it's weird because you know for a film which is very slow the fact that it kind of jumps forward like a couple of years i think but their characters are completely changed in that time and they're suddenly at each other's throats and they introduce a few new characters including this pantomime femme fatale played by Kem- kate blanchett and you're kind of wondering by this point, when is this thing going to settle on a story? And it does finally settle on a story, but it feels a little bit too late. Like throughout the film, I'd say like on the plus side, the production design is beautiful. Like the mid-century era is just so beautifully evoked. The colours, all the dark kind of woody shades. And I mean, I think Bradley Cooper is quite a, a reliable presence on the screen but i just uh i don't know i don't think he's really remarkable he doesn't he doesn't have a lot of range i didn't really believe in him a lot of this film and so it's a bit disappointing it, it, overall it's just generally a bit disappointing beyond the production design i suppose just the atmosphere generally it it's not the best unfortunately certainly nowhere near the best of del toro it flopped at the box office, obviously. Not sure what they expected. Like, there's no nostalgia element here. I mean, at least, and obviously Roger Rabbit was set in the 40s, but at least it threw in a few cartoons, you know. This is just really dour and long and slow. And he, I think, like all of Del Toro's films, it's clearly a labour of love, but it feels laborious to us, I think. Now, I will say, however, that I did chat about this with Laszlo Buckets the other day, and he liked it probably a lot more than me. So I but I found it very, very hard going. Unfortunately, it's a shame because I was just thinking back to is, is Ron Pillman in this? Of course he is. <laughs> That's right. So it's good then. Right. Next. Yes, film. Okay. No, no, um, no, it just. um. Just thinking about as you were talking, I was just thinking I was mentally like riffing through uh, Guillermo del Toro's movies, and I thought, well, he's never made anything this bad, but this seems like one that's boring. And mm. I think it's I, not I, bad, but well, technically, it definitely isn't bad. It's just like The Shape of Water. I just that's, that's well, another film of his I haven't seen again yeah. because I've gone off what you've said. So maybe it's something I'd enjoy, but I, I struggle with sentimentality as you do so it's 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 a kind of i don't know how to describe it it's like it's like reaching for a kind of almost spielbergian like early spielbergian like innocence type thing like childlike innocence type thing but the difference was that spielberg was actually making children's films i mean like and, and that's the thing i it's the combination of the dark cynicism of these ruthless people and the moody noirish atmosphere combined with the drippy sentimentality on top which is why i think it gets better as it goes on because actually it becomes more cynical and dark and much more noirish as it goes on which i preferred it's just those that first hour is really hard going I, I think I will watch this because I, I kind of trust the game of El Toro, but and I and I like Bradley Cooper, but I'm just thinking, yeah, if it's a, if it's a slog, that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah. I've I've seen a few people talking about the I'm just gonna say it again, the Batman, like it like it's a slog and it's boring and it's emo Batman, uh, and uh, I ne- I never 
it's weird when I like a film, I kind of don't care what people say about it. Yeah. Um, but I was reading it and I thought I all I could think of with that was it's a shame you didn't enjoy it as much as I did because I'm fully intending to like revisit this and go back. But when someone says a film is boring, for me it's it's I don't know. It's like when someone says, "Oh, you know, have you seen a film? Have you bought this album?" They say, "Oh, it's all right." It's like, ah. Oh. <laughs> So yes. am I giving all of my time to something that's, you know, when there's I so think, much choice well, out there? It's kind of a difficult one to quantify, though, boredom, isn't it? Because it's quite possible for someone to find something utterly boring, but you find it completely compelling. Like I, know I look at you computer chess. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I, I suppose if you're... Primer? It's like if you're, if, you, if you're gripped by the plot and the characterization and stuff like that, or just the visuals, you can be kind of entranced by that. And but if you f- kind of fall off that wagon halfway along, then you're going to be not really engaged with the rest of the film. And then a film is however long or whatever style is going to become boring because you you're not invested I, I su- anymore. I suppose a good example for this podcast would be that recently the Night Clock with Ty Sheridan because mm. you, you you fell off the wagon whereas I yes. was so enthralled by his performance that I was it kind of it was like I was riding his back to the end credits. <laughs> just thinking yes, yes, I just like I just like looking at you I like watching you act. I li- I like I like the art you create. Yes. Whereas you were, yeah, you you when you were talking about it, and Anna de Armas was in that as well. So, uh, as she is in Bond, she's a great Bond girl, by the way. Yeah, yeah, she's sort of just slightly kooky. Um, I have you got any more? Sorry, that is everything. Well, I have three documentaries that I just wanted to briefly talk oh, yeah. about before we clocked out. If that's if you if you've got time, yeah. Yeah, one of them. It, it, this is I'm gonna like fly through these. The first one is called "The Song of the South," and it's a documentary on Amazon Prime about the Allman Brothers band. Now I don't know anything about the Allman Brothers apart from I've got a couple of close friends that really like them, and the music seems great. But it, and I just wanted to say what I took away from it was Dwayne Allman could play guitar. <laughs> he he could play it, and he didn't mind listening to music, and it was just. What I found was this documentary. It's like it was like ninety minutes, two hours long, and it was saying all oh, the bands he'd formed, formed away from how many people it influenced, the scene he'd brought up in the South, how he had kind of flipped over people's view of Southern music and what it could do, how he had done a lot of uh, session work and could move between gospel and soul and rock and blue and and just weave this, this pure natural understanding of music, this real passion for it, and then it said, oh. And of course, when he died, he was 23. And I thought, what? Mm. He'd done all that. I, I just assumed he was in his 30s or 40s because I was so new to it. And it was a real shock to know that like this chameleonic guitarist is like, oh, dead, 23, 24. He'd done all this in the space of a handful of years. So uh, I need to listen to the Allman Brothers, basically. Yes. That's my note to myself for that. The other one on a more lighthearted note was I, <clears throat> I watched... Um, uh, there's a classic album series. It's, it's obviously from the late 90s. It's in 4x3 on Amazon Prime, if you fancy all this sort of stuff. There's mm-hmm. only a few bands that interest me, but there's Black Sabbath, Paranoid Classic Albums, mm-hmm. and it's all of them clearly, clearly not really getting on because they're all interviewed totally separately and stuff. And this is recorded, I'd say, in the mid-2000s. And like Paranoid, 
I know Black Sabbath, but I'm more of a greatest hits fan of Black Sabbath. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. Like I, I like all the, I like all the, you know, seven, eight minute jammy sort of dirgy songs. So uh, yeah, watching this, it was just what, what I found really funny about this is 55 minutes of your time, and if you have a passing interest in Black Sabbath, what tickled me about it is, you know, it cuts to, pardon me. <clears throat> For instance, you've got Tony Iommi in a studio. And he's playing the riffs that he wrote on the, on that album that that broke them and made them big, and he's saying, yeah, you know, we 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 toured Germany a lot, we toured Europe a lot, we we were, you know, people always say, oh, you spent a few hundred quid on your first album, you 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 went at the studio, you knocked it up in a couple of days, and it just exploded. And he said, actually, the truth is that we were like a very finely tuned touring machine, which is why we could do it so cheaply and so quickly because we went and they did everything live, boom boom. And he's all about the technical aspects and what effects he used and stuff. And then it'll do a hard cut to, to um, Ozzy Osbourne, and he'll just say, we didn't have a fucking clue. No fucking clue what we were doing. And I thought, ah, it's two different takes there, isn't it? And 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 it's really funny because um, you got Bill Ward and Geezer Butler all, all sort of talking about the, the, their parts and stuff. And every time it cuts towards the Osbourne, he's just, it's like he's just bumbled into the wrong interview. It's brilliant. Um <laughs> And what what the bit about it that that I really took away from it is, uh, Giza Butler. I didn't know this, but Giza Butler writes the lyrics. Ozzy Osbourne literally is the singer. Like he writes, yeah. he sings words written for him. And Giza Butler says, "I'd write lyrics." And if if Ozzy Osbourne couldn't put them to music, he would just sing the riff. And <laughs> I was like, oh. Actually, like I am the singer and guitarist in a band and have been since I was 16. And I thought, oh, I kind of get what he means. And then it played the clip of Iron Man. I thought, ah, oh, yes. And that is like the absolute lowest common denominator. It works for them. But it just tickled me. I thought, Jesus Christ, Ozzy, you have far like less input than I thought you did in this band. <laughs> um, and my third documentary is one that I paid for with cash money. I bought a, a vinyl record of this because it came with this DVD, which is so hard to find. And it is a DVD called I Am Secretly an Important Man by Stephen Jesse Bernstein, who is a poet from... Actually, I think he's from somewhere like Albuquerque, but he moved. He moved to Seattle. He's much known as he's more known as a Seattle poet. And I'm not massively into poetry beyond Charles Bukowski. And I think the reason I like Stephen Jesse Bernstein is because of his his uh, his more mellow delivery is is like Charles Bukowski. And when he gets more animated, it's is his own thing. Hmm. But it's an interesting documentary because he is a person who never made it. He's clearly very talented. Hmm clearly very troubled um so this isn't like a you know like a, a boy did good sort of thing or fall from grace this is just someone who struggled never made it but was but wrote these beautiful poems and if you're into like beat poetry um things influenced by like um alan ginsburg and, and charles bukowski mm. I, stephen jesse bernstein is a bit of a i really do feel like he's an underdog i came across him on a um there was a in seattle there was a cd release well at the time it was a vinyl but i got it on a cd called sub pop 200 you had like early sound garden and minute all this sort of stuff and, and on it was this one poetry track called um what's it called my clouded heart um, but it, it was it was there was a poem on it by Stephen Jesse Bernstein. It was fantastic, and mm. it, it, there's something he he looks like an old man almost. He's got that like you know when um you know when old men look like they're constantly chewing on something. 
Yes. And the, the lower jaw juts, and he's got these thick, thick, like uh, milk bottle glasses, and this like sort of thick, wiry hair, um, covered in tattoos. And it's just a, it covers his troubled life. But it, I feel like it's an important documentary because his his actual poetry and his releases are very, very expensive to get hold of. Mm. Like I, I, the cheapest I could find his book, I am secretly an important man, which is released posthumously was 600 pounds. Uh, and oh. I've got his prison album on CD. And what's interesting about this album called prison is, is record label at the time, sub a uh, sub pop who obviously released you know, early Nirvana and Soundgarden. Mm. They uh, thought that he could do a kind of Johnny cash thing where they took him to a prison and, you know, he just read his poetry and everyone got on board, but apparently it was a bit more awkward than that and it wasn't as instant. So what they did was they took it away and they took his recordings and they got someone to put like an electronic beat behind them and it works weirdly well. So, <laughs> That's bizarre. So, so yeah, you've got, if you, there's live footage of him trying to recapture it with like an upright bassist. And what Stephen Jesse Bernstein does on stage is he tries to match what the bass is playing and it sounds awkward. But on the album, when he's just with his natural cadence and rhythms, when you've got someone adding beats in after the fact, it really works. And I think he's one of my favorite poems. And he's got is this one uh, one poem called uh, Clouded Heart. There's one called My Face. And there's a beautiful video on YouTube of, of, uh, of an artist who has put uh, sort of comic book imagery to to my face, which is a long poem. And the camera kind of moves through each sort of cell of the animation as he says it which is gorgeous and there's one mm. of his uh, i think it's called jackie o uh or I, or I am secretly an important man actually i think is the title of it and that's one of my favorite poems and it's just it, it captures his humor his approach and just the sadness and this and the struggle of being someone who effectively has it's one of those things, kind of like Elliot Smith, where I, I, I feel like if he was alive now, he would mm. just be treated. Yeah, yeah. You know? But at the if time, he was alive it, now, he would be alive now. Yes, which is a great way of putting it. And, it, and I was watching it, and, it, and, and Faye was watching with me, and she said, God, this is, this is a really downtrodden documentary. And I said, yeah, I just, it's just the wrong time. Mm. Like, you know, so... I'm secretly an important man. You can probably, it's probably cheaper to pick up the vinyl with a DVD included <laughs> than buying it separately or trying to stream it, to be honest. And, it, and getting, if anyone could get hold of any of his poetry and they're willing to sell it to me, <laughs> the better talk at Outlook.com. It's weird, isn't it? Like, what, uh, why is it so difficult to get hold of? Uh, I, I get Licensing? the impression, I get the impression uh, from watching the documentary and like what I've sort of read about in the past is that he, he was quite, he was a very um he he wrote a lot of poetry and he worked all the time but he didn't have any deals and it was only when he died that people took an interest or like later in his life so he never it was only then that they released a couple of books and even then in america that there's nothing really available in the uk at all so this documentary was made in 2010 uh so you're looking at you you know this this interest in his life was brought up 12 years ago which would have brought a spike of interest in his works which are already out of print and now we're 12 years on from that spike so it's just i'd love to read one of his books of poetry but you know 
600 quid. <laughs> yes. It's a little bit of a... A little bit of a firewall, really, isn't it? Yeah. So, but yeah, Stephen Jesse Boonstein, if you like Charles Bukowski, check him out effectively. Basically. Okay, good. So, what's the Arkenstar then? Yes, okay, so the, the Turbo Mega Ultra Uber Arkenstar <laughs> is if you can link all of the main cast members of Friends in a line, which will probably go on for the next few episodes. Does it have to go, hang on, does it make a difference which order? No, no, not at all. Uh, I'm just trying to work out whether that makes it any easier or not. Probably not, really, because you still have to go through the same people. Well, well how, we could even remove the rule. You would, you could just say, like, if you can get through them, you know, just get, get. Yeah, and we'll, yeah. We'll whittle it down from there. Get from, you know, all the cast. So is that? That's yeah. Lisa Gaudreau, um Courtney, Courtney Cox. Cox, Jennifer Aniston, David Schwimmer, Matthew Perry, Matt LeBlanc. Get through them in any order. Like, just clock through them. <laughs> and we'll read them out as they come in, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, okay. There's our homework. And the, uh, but the, the main, the, the standard Arkansas is okay. Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher to Bradley Cooper. Okay. So, so, Rupert, it's that time. What would you say is your movie of the week? What is my movie of the week? Not Nightmare Alley. Um, <laughs> thankfully, I don't have too many. I, the Burbs holds up pretty well but i think who framed roger rabbit holds up splendidly so i will go with who framed roger rabbit yeah it's a film that uh, it's one of those films that whenever people bring it up you i, I think in my head yeah i like that a lot yes, like i yes. yeah i, I want to watch that again I, I, I love the fact that bob hoskins was such a weirdly big star for that little pocket of time <laughs> like with that and super mario brothers and hook and stuff and it's like he was so out of his element because he's clearly such like a rough working class guy. And then, of course, he ended up going back to doing kind of indie dramas and stuff uh, with the likes of 24-7 and things. So it's, that was a nice story, really. But but he was. He played a really nasty character in Danny the Dog with Jet Li as well, which is yeah. a really good which is a really good film with, with mm. a kind of a heart to it. Um, I, I, I feel like I, I'm talking about that as uh, as someone who viewed it in the late teens, I can imagine now it's much nastier than yeah. I remember. <laughs> yeah. um, you feel kind of immune to that malevolence when you're that age. <laughs> yeah. You're just like, Oh, this is cool. But I think now I'd watch it. And I think mm, that's a bit that's naughty. That is um, my, mine's more complicated. My, my film, because bullet to Beijing, I really did like in, okay. in a really understated way. No time to die is a perfectly, it's a, it's an above average to me bond film like it, it i felt like it was it, it was the film to be made at that point for that character mm-hmm. um the batman is clearly film of the week i i really enjoyed i really enjoyed lockout the expendables trilogy is a massive series of misfires that just with some bullets more on target than others but i think it's a documentary if anyone can if anyone has a passing interest in poetry i am secretly an important man it, it i don't know there's something about the underdogs that never even got a chance and uh mm. yeah it was it was clearly talent there and the fact that when i went online well, afterwards i said right i'm buying a couple of his books to read and i couldn't made me more determined to mention it on the podcast so uh yeah uh, it, documentary of the week is i am secretly an important man and film of the week for me is the batman good Excellent. and that is it 
So have you, you haven't done one of your, well, I was a couple of things. One is you haven't done one of your runs for a while where you watch a lot of films of, of a certain series. And secondly, mm. we should probably do a state of play soon because it's coming up to mid year now. Yes. Yes. Uh, you're right. Um, on both counts. There's nothing, the franchise is really tickling my fancy. Although I do believe the Jaws franchise is on one of these channels. I can't remember which one. Definitely seen, speaking of Michael Caine, I've, I've spotted Jaws the Revenge on one of them. So, <sighs> Please. Because mm. I've, only, I've only ever seen the first one. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, which is probably, I guess, after you reason for six that. of them say, yeah, that's where you stop as well. It's <laughs> pretty much it. Yeah. Um, I'm interested. Yes. I have seen all of them, but not for a long, long time. Very familiar with the first one. I'd be happy to talk about that. Yeah. Okay. That's just a possibility. Yeah. But it would be nice to get into some series. It, remi- it reminds me of a time when, um, and this is going slightly off topic, where years ago, I, I, I obviously I love Blood, the video game. <laughs> and because it's really good. And uh, yeah. apart from the, sh- the shotgun cultist hit detection, which is a problem. And I remember seeing someone and they claimed to me that I was chatting about, oh, you like games, blah, blah, blah. And they said, oh, my favorite video game is Blood 2 The Chosen. And I just mm-hmm. blurted, I couldn't stop myself. I just blurted out, have you played any other games? Because, <laughs> like, I've played that game and it's not even, like, the best in that genre or, like, the best in that series. In that series. Like, that series of two games. Two games. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, Rupert, as, as, as is, you know, customary, I want you to close your eyes and... I just want you to think of a moment when you were under a waterfall and you're, you're washing yourself in a post-apocalyptic landscape where creatures are attracted by sound, but you're under waterfall, so they're not going to get you. You're having a nice time. And you're really washing your balls, really, really washing them. And then something comes down the waterfall and you, you happen to catch it in your open palm. And you step aside and you, you shake you shake the droplets from your hair, and you you look down at it. You wipe the water from your eyes and you open open your hand and there's something in your hand, and you just clear your eyes of water, and you look down again, and it's a fiver. 